0: Hello, I'm Sam Breakgear, and welcome to The Social Podcast. On this episode, we'll be speaking with the New York Times and his Bureau-in-Chief, Nicholas Casey. He covers a number of South American countries, but has spent a large amount of time working in Venezuela, reporting on events taking place from within the country for the New York Times. He came in to talk about the recent nationwide blackout that struck the country while he was there, along with current availability and the use of cryptocurrency in Venezuela. For our What the Tech feature, where we look at frighteningly accurate or hilariously inaccurate tech predictions from celebrities and experts in the tech industry, we have a clip from a 2003 presentation from Steve Jobs which hasn't aged well, especially given recent headlines. And for our Neuron to Something piece, where we look at psychology studies and research influenced by technology, we have a study analysing the psychology behind why people choose to watch disturbing videos online of torture and murder. Into so this research comes from Sarah Redmond and her colleagues at the University of California, and it was published by the British Psychological Society's website, Research Digest. The aim of their research was to understand what motivated people to watch the ISIS beheadings of American journalists, James Foley and Steven Sotloff. They started by recruiting 4,675 adults online and assessed their mental health, TV watching habits, demographics, political affiliation, and religion. Six months later, the participants all reported on their fear of future terrorism and also on their lifetime exposure to violence. Following this, between April and June 2015, roughly eight months or so after the two ISIS beheading videos were released, 3,294 of the participants reported anonymously whether they had watched one of the videos either in its entirety, partly, or not at all. About 20% reported watching at least part of one of the videos, and another 5% said they'd watched at least one to the end. People in these groups were more likely to be male, Christian, and unemployed, and generally watch more TV than average, while also having a higher lifetime experience of violence. Nearly 3,000 of the participants also agreed to write about their motivations for watching, stopping watching, or avoiding the videos altogether. Many who fully or partially watched the videos said that they wanted to gain information and verify that the videos existed or wanted to satisfy their curiosity about what was in them. People who stopped watching part way through or who avoided the videos reported that they did so mostly for emotional reasons. For example, like it was too sad or because they didn't want to feel that they were supporting ISIS by watching the footage. A year after the participants gave their responses, they completed more online surveys, and the researchers found that those who'd watched at least part of a video had higher levels of distress and a greater sense of fear for future negative events compared with those who hadn't watched any videos at all. These relationships held after controlling for prior distress, lifetime exposure to violence, and prior fear of negative events. With this information, the researchers were confident in their conclusion that watching graphic coverage may exacerbate pre-existing fears and increase psychological symptomatology, demonstrating that the negative psychological impacts of viewing graphic media produced by terrorists. As Resmond and her colleagues further note, the findings also imply that watching such coverage may assist terrorists in achieving their goals of instilling fear. So these findings are quite significant because the more attention we give these videos, the more successful terrorists are in achieving their goals. And as the report states, viewing these videos exacerbates the problem and only encourages terrorists to commit and publish more acts of terrorism online. This is especially true given the recent events in New Zealand, as videos of the attack have been spread all across the internet. And as a result, New Zealand has already arrested one 18-year-old boy for sharing the videos. And Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister has demanded that social media sites do way more to stop the spread of the video. So really, if you want to help and put an end to these types of videos, then the best thing you can do is just avoid them completely. And now time for our chat with Nick Casey. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nick Casey. Um, If you want to explain what you do and who you are for our listeners, Please, go ahead. Sure.
1: I'm I'm the Andes Bureau Chief for the New York Times, which uh, means I'm their main correspondent who's covering uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia. And I write about all aspects of these places, um, society, culture, the economy. A lot of the focus this year has been on Venezuela, obviously, because of the political turmoil there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I live here in Colombia.
0: Awesome. Excellent. Um, It's great to have you in here because... The truth is Venezuela is an incredible case study for, for many aspects of economics, politics and global news to everything. But considering we focus on technology and society and psychology, um, there's two main topics that I would really love to discuss with you today. Certainly as someone that's been inside Venezuela and witnessed both. Uh, first of all, um, recently they obviously had a blackout. and Correct me if I'm wrong, but all energy, all energy across the country, was it? Yeah, it was, it was
1: the first nationwide blackout uh, that anybody can really remember in, in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. This was completely unprecedented. You had 30 million people around that amount um, that
0: suddenly found themselves uh, without electricity for days. Mm-hmm. That's uh, I can't even begin to imagine. When I think of, if, for example, if all the power went out in any society, certainly a Western society, or I suppose anywhere in the world... It would be chaos. I can imagine. I can't even begin to imagine what would happen. Um, What What was your experience like being in there? Well, um, it was,
1: as you said, kind of like a case study in terms of what happens when you see like a like a fundamental pillar of the state suddenly disappear. Which is, Mm -hmm. if there's one thing that the state can do, it's provide electricity to people. It also provides healthcare. It provides security. A lot of these things have already disappeared in Venezuela, but Maduro has been able to keep the lights on more or less uh, until, until now. Now, it started um, on a Thursday and a lot of people just thought this was a routine rolling blackout because they'd seen these before um, and they were waiting for the lights to come back on. But after a couple of hours, as people started to talk to each other, they were realizing that this wasn't just their homes that were affected but everybody in in the country. Given that it was a nationwide power outage, people began to see that this was going to be different. I don't think anybody realized it was going to drag on for five, six days. Uh, In some places, they still don't have power. What you saw was first people were trying to pool their resources. Um, Some people who had generators fired them up, allowed their neighbors to begin to use them to charge cell phones so people could be in touch with each other then people were going into the refrigerators and starting to cook up the last food that they had because they realized they weren't going to be able to keep the meats cold and they were going to start rotting pretty soon and in Maracaibo where I where I just came back from it was on the third and fourth day that you started to see the looting which is that Maracaibo is this very sweltering city on the coast um, it uses a lot of electricity um, people really needed it and the temper started to flare pretty quickly, once they saw the electricity wasn't coming back. and What happened was that you had uh, unruly crowds of up to a 1,000 people, it seemed, going through the city, going store to store, and looting everything that they could find, and it wasn't just food. People were taking appliances, uh, furniture, uh, completely destroying stores, pharmacies, um, and this went on for more than a day. Uh, I talked to doctors that were explaining how they couldn't treat their patients in the hospitals because they didn't have an electricity. The doctors had been used to already working without medication or with broken equipment, but once that equipment couldn't be used at all, that suddenly turned the tables on the doctors themselves. This was something that they weren't prepared for at all, and uh, one medical official I talked to said that 42 people died during the period of the power outage, and of those, they they estimated that about half of them, uh, the deaths were attributed to the fact that the doctors couldn't take care of them because of the lack of electricity.
0: It's pretty scary stuff. Um, did you see, Was there you talked about looting, was there much violence? Or was it primarily just for the sake of you know, getting their hands on, I suppose, what was available at the time? Was, was, was there much violence? Well, it turned really violent because a lot
1: of the store owners were trying to defend their stores. Uh, I talked to people that had seen, basically had gotten on top of roofs and looked up through binoculars of what was happening. And they said that they saw and could hear people firing shots. I also talked to doctors and hospitals that were saying that once the looting started they had this huge wave of uh, patients that were coming in, bullet wounds, uh, injuries from glass, and the doctor said the patients would say, well, we were just walking and a bunch of glass fell on me, and they got the impression from that that these were looters uh, that had gotten hurt in trying to uh, break into a store. And um, and yeah, so the, the looting is almost never never. Uh, uh, it's almost never peaceful because it's 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 violent. People try to defend their stores, and, and that's where a lot of the um, the, the the casualties came from.
0: Mm-hmm. And did did you feel scared? I mean, I'm I'm not gonna lie. If I was in that situation, I think I'd be pretty scared. <laughs> well, fortunately, we weren't in the middle of any of the looting. We we
1: stayed away from it. There was looting that was going on when we were in the city, but the worst of it had uh, already taken place. Uh, What you saw was that people themselves in the city were still scared, especially business owners. Uh, It was very hard to get food in uh, Maracaibo, even after parts of the electricity came back on in places, because almost all the major supermarkets had been looted, but also the few remaining places that still had merchandise to sell wouldn't open
0: because they were afraid that someone was going to come in and sack them. Mm -hmm. And you you mentioned earlier that some people were using generators to charge their phones. Um, What was communication like? How were you able to still communicate with to people inside Venezuela or outside Venezuela and how did anyone communicate? It was hard during the first days before I got there because
1: uh, even reaching people became impossible not just because there were problems with the telecommunications but just problems because people didn't have battery in their phone. And as the days went on, it became uh, more easy to use um, the, uh, the telephone network to get in touch with people. Um, but it was spotty. It was on and off. One of the things that people were saying that was the scariest part of the first days of the power out was not being able to get in touch with their friends and their relatives to see if they were okay, but also not being able to hear anything from the government because they couldn't turn their TV on to see if they were explaining things. And when the explanation finally came from Maduro... Uh, A lot of people found it to be preposterous. He said that it was a cybernetic electromagnetic attack uh, that had been launched from Houston and Chicago. And given that the electric grid of, the, of Venezuela is is nothing uh, extremely technological, it's very basic, it lacks a lot of basic maintenance, a lot of people found that it was not very believable that this was a cyber attack that had mm. been launched uh, from the opposition, but more likely something that had just been the result of years of, uh, of lack of maintenance to, 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 to this electric grid.
0: Sounds crazy. Um, and the second thing I was uh, hoping to talk to you about is cryptocurrencies. So I'm, I'm a big fan of cryptocurrencies. I, I pay attention to the headlines a lot. And I have to say that advocates of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, they absolutely love Venezuela because they always go on about how real money is going to crumble. And Venezuela is a perfect case study for that. And they all get excited about how much cryptocurrencies are helping Venezuelans. And I'm sure there are some case studies. But from speaking with my family, anyway, they've told me that it's it's not that simple. It's really not that easy. It's not the the it's not the savior that the cryptocurrency community really like pegs it as. As someone that's been inside Venezuela and you've seen the currency, um, the the bolivar um, deteriorate, what has been your experience with cryptocurrencies in Venezuela? Well, there definitely is evidence that there are some Venezuelans
1: who are using cryptocurrency, and other Venezuelans who are mining cryptocurrency. Before this power outage, uh, it was fairly easy to get the electricity that you needed to do um, uh, Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. But on a large scale, while I think a lot of the Bitcoin evangelists and cryptocurrency evangelists um, see Venezuela as as a perfect country, when you actually look on the ground, it's not because. In order to have uh, a functioning cryptocurrency, you, you need to have widespread access to technology. And given the crumbling of Venezuelan society right now, people can't you know, afford to even pay their internet bill. And the internet is so spotty right now. Those um, you know, who are there often don't have access to it. The other issue is that you need to have money that you can invest in cryptocurrency and the minimum wage um, is always deteriorating in Venezuela. There are times where the minimum wage is less than $2 a month, depending on how the inflation is going and how the changes, how the raises in in minimum wage are going to keep up with inflation. So on the whole, um, it would be great if Venezuelans had the money to be able to invest in something like cryptocurrency. But when you see the facts on the ground, most Venezuelans are simply trying to figure out how they're going to buy food for the next week. And they don't have any savings left over to actually be able to invest in something. Certainly, if they could invest, something like cryptocurrency or dollars would be magnificent. But um, practically speaking, there's just not a lot of extra money to be able to make that
0: kind of investment. Mm. And would it be possible or do you think that could it could least, at least be used... If someone was outside of Venezuela, for example, in the US, earning money, and they wanted to send it, is it feasible to send it through cryptocurrency using Bitcoin and then to use it there? Because I spoke to my family as like, that as an option. I said, is this not an option? But they said... Using it is not simple there, and also converting into Bolivar's, that's that's not an option. It's really hard, and also
1: because of uh, the added layer that Maduro's government has put in creating its own cryptocurrency, the the Petro. Um, My understanding is that the government is trying to charge an 11% tax on Bitcoin transactions right now. I don't know what success they are having in, in collecting that tax, but it's creating an extra you know loop for people to actually try to trade um, bitcoin or repatriate it into venezuela um, ultimately i think what people are looking towards is dollars because dollars um, everybody wants dollars still it's an alternative form of currency and that's often what you see in countries uh, when their currency collapses and they dollarize. And I think one of the things that people were wondering with Venezuela was, would it go um, instead uh, of uh, bolivars to dollars from bolivars to cryptocurrency? Bolivars to dollars is what happened to Zimbabwe when they had crazy inflation, but Bitcoin didn't exist at that point. I think the reason why it's going towards dollars once again has to do with this issue of, of technology and lack of access to things like electricity and computers and internet. Uh, if all those things were available, you actually probably could could have seen, like the entry of of Bitcoin in a major way in Venezuela, but often these crises which would have created the opening for Bitcoin also create the same closure for it to be able to be freely traded that easily.
0: Mm. Do you think that in a future where, say, Maduro exits, he leaves for whatever reason, the country has some kind of political stability, however, the economic stability is not there obviously they can't use the bolivar do you think that it would ever be feasible that they would say hey you know what let's just adopt bitcoin or let's adopt or do you think they would ever adopt a cryptocurrency as a new currency
1: it's hard because it would work for probably middle and upper class people but still for people in barrios um i, I think the, the technology just isn't there to be able to have this circulate what the government is talking about now is using uh, is dollarizing, mm. basically. Now that that's what they've talked about. That's kind of the easiest thing. The government can buy lots of dollars. They can circulate mm-hmm. dollars. Um, I think that uh, you would have to have a situation where you would have a physical currency too, in addition to being able to have electronic payments, mm-hmm. which you can do with cryptocurrency. The thing is, is that if there's another government that it's control, um, they'll still face issues of not enough electricity. It's going to be a long recovery for Venezuela. So to be able to lay down all the infrastructure groundwork that Bitcoin could circulate, I think we're still looking years into the future. Perhaps if there were a crisis like this in you know, five ten years time where technology is just much more prevalent in the Mm -hmm. hands of the poor, you could create a currency um, that everyone could use. But uh, if you see um, the levels of cryptocurrency use um, in in borrowers among the very poor of a country, especially in places like Latin America, I imagine that you'll see that um, those rates are very low. And when you design a national currency, it has to be able to be traded by everybody.
0: Mm What technology are you really looking forward to seeing develop, or at least is there any technology which gives you hope could help Venezuela, whether that's some form of communication or... I know it's a very vague or general question, but is there is there any way you see technology helping the situation in Venezuela? I, suppose? I actually think
1: technology has helped in allowing Venezuelans to be able to trade boulevards into dollars. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's one way. I mean, Venezuelans really needed access to dollars and uh, PayPal uh, was actually able to come in and and provide that. It used to be in Venezuela that to be able to um, get uh, dollars and Bolivar's trade, you have to go through a middleman Uh, that would physically come and bring the currency to you and because of electronic payments and because PayPal has been able to get into Venezuela it allows a lot of people to be able to find people who want to trade bolivars into dollars and and, and vice versa so I'd say that you are seeing technology playing a big role in um, the currency problems that Venezuela has even if it's not quite Bitcoin, although I think Bitcoin does have have a role that it does play in this as well, um, but uh, in terms of uh, making electronic payments, that's that's definitely that's definitely helped. And I think the more uh, systems for electronic payments that can exist in Venezuela, uh, the better, especially you know because of inflation, uh, more presence of uh, companies like uh, Square being able to take payments uh, on your phone because you know especially with uh, the the currency crisis that they're having right now using dollars, sorry, using paper currency just becomes unfeasible once the inflation hits a certain rate and you can't
0: actually get enough bills to be able to pay for things. Mm-hmm. No, um, well, hopefully, I hope the situation better as well. Obviously, gets a lot better and any way technology can help, then I suppose it's a blessing. Yeah. Um, that's all my questions for now. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick. Great, thanks um, for having me on the show. What the heck?
1: and all of it was ninety-nine cents a song with no subscription fees because people have told us over and over and over again they don't want to rent their music just to make that perfectly clear music's not like a video your favorite movie you may watch ten times in your life your favorite song you're gonna to listen to a thousand times in your life if it cost you ten bucks a month or over a hundred dollars a year for a subscription fee to rent that song that means for me to listen to my favorite song in 10 years, I've paid over $1,000 in subscription fees to listen to my favorite song 10 years from now, and that just doesn't fly with customers. They don't want subscriptions.
0: That was Steve Jobs giving a presentation back in 2003. Obviously, subscription services, such as Spotify, have become the new norm, with the streaming giant holding a market value of $29.5 billion in 2018, according to TechCrunch. The clip is even more interesting given the recent spat that has broken out between Apple and Spotify, which has seen the two companies going at each other like two celebrities in a Twitter feud. According to The Verge, it was recently announced that Spotify has filed an antitrust complaint against Apple with the European Union, alleging that the iPhone maker is harming consumer choice and stifling innovation via the rules it enforces on the App Store. Apple has fired back against the streaming service by saying that Spotify wants all the benefits of a free app without being free. That's our show for today. You can find all the details from today's show on our website at sociable.co. Thanks for listening.